whether we're sitting or walking meditation or going about our business or studying the Dhamma. We're fortunate that we always have the framework of the Four Noble Truths to refer to. The Four Noble Truths uh, encompass all the Buddhist, the Buddhist teachings and they expand out to fill the whole Tripitaka. But at the same time, we can reduce them back down to very succinct, easy concepts to understand and practices and strategies to put into place as we go through our life as bhikkhus. And we keep coming back to dukkha, the first noble truth is to be known. The Buddha never intended us just to sit here suffering or just suffer in our lives, just encouraged us to look at dukkha and know it as, as it is. The cause of dukkha explained in great detail, say, in the teaching on dependent origination from avicca through to dhanha, upadana, bhava and jati, the way suffering or stress does arise, the causal conditions for it, the process so that we can become familiar with looking at that, witnessing it, understanding it, but then applying the remedies, the sila, the samadhi and the panya in the fourth noble truth to bring about some cessation of dukkha, the third noble truth. Avicca is the, the seemingly bottomless beginning of all our dukkha the dark hole, the black hole, from whence dukkha comes from. And what causes avicca? Well, one practical application of the teachings is what, to see the unwholesome cycles and habits of thinking that we get caught into feed avicca. So the dukkha that we experience when we're not mindful and applying wise reflection tends to lead to states, unwholesome states of mind arising. This feeds more avicca, which feeds more dukkha, and so on. So it's a seemingly never-ending cycle of samsara. So in practical terms, in our practice, we're dealing with the five hindrances. The more we indulge and give in to the five hindrances, 
through unwise attention, craving and attachment, then the more avicca is reinforced and conditioned. And then the more craving and attachment we experience and then the more suffering we experience. <coughs> so this is why in the practice of our meditation, learning to pay attention, bring up mindfulness and develop the wholesome states of mind that lead and comprise the mind of samadhi is so much the heart of our practice because we're dealing with the very seeds of avicca, learning to abandon them and bring about this process of cessation, the cessation, full cessation of dukkha. In Thailand in the old days, <clears throat> so even when I was a young monk, first year I was a monk, I went to stay with Lumpur Khun at Napo. One of the first things I noticed when I arrived there, they still used ox carts because his monastery was quite a few kilometers out of town. There was no proper road to the monastery. It was just a dirt track with the wheel marks of the ox carts. In the, some of the very poorer villagers, the ones who lived outside the village, had absolutely no money, lived in little grass roof huts with no electricity, and they still relied on ox carts for their means of transportation. And they had a saying, sometimes quoted by Ajahn Chah and others, that you know, this trying to change your, the conditioning process, your habits, your attachments, which is what we're doing here in the practice. It's like trying to change the direction of an ox cart. In the old days when there were a lot of ox carts, the tracks, the ruts of the wheels, just the tracks became very deep. And they say it was even possible for the farmer going to tr town on his ox cart. He could just set the ox off going in the direction of the next village or wherever he's going and even fall asleep on his ox cart and he wouldn't have to worry where he would end up because they could only go in one direction just following the ruts of all the previous ox cart journeys that had been carried out on that track the ox and the cart would just follow along the driver could even nod off and then when he reaches the village, wake up. There's no way the ox cart could go off any, in any other direction. It's stuck in the ruts of the wheels. The only way you could change direction would actually be to stop the ox cart and physically have to help the ox shift the whole direction out of the ruts. It's a bit like moving a tram off a tram line move it in another direction if they're going to go on a side route to somewhere else and then get back on the ox cart. There's a big process just to change direction. So dealing with this conditioning process, the way Awicca has been fed by the five hindrances over and over again through our lives, 
It's obviously not such a simple, easy matter. We would like that because of our, again, because of our conditioning, our attachment to ease and comfort and perhaps having had a lot of ease and comfort in our lives. We get used to that and that's what we want. And then when we come to practice, you know, we're faced with having to lift this big ox cart of a mind out of its tracks to turn it in another direction, in the direction of bringing up mindfulness and wise reflection, keeping the sila and the vinaya, arousing energy in the practice and so on. You know, it's a big effort and a continuous effort. And that's particularly what we're seeing in the Vasa time when we have lots of free time to sit, walk, contemplate, study the Dhamma, contemplate the Dhamma. You know, we can understand maybe the concepts first and that's important, but to actually change the direction of the mind, the habit of falling into the hindrances is as big a task as, or even bigger <laughs> as lifting out an ox cart from its wheel ruts and turning it. So much of our practice does require this patient effort. This is why it's so much emphasized in the practice of patience, endurance, because we're learning to go against the stream of our craving attachment, conditioning more avicca, going against the hindrances. It requires a lot of patient effort being with unpleasant, unsatisfying mental states, but not reacting them to them with more craving and attachment, having enough patience, mindfulness, endure through them till they pass. A lot of the practice is like that. So patient endurance is a huge part of the practice, especially in the beginning as we're learning how to meditate regularly, how to keep putting effort into the practice. Ajahn Chah used to say, the taste of patience is bitter, in putting forth patience, enduring, enduring through different mental states and reactions and emotions. It's a bitter thing, but the, the fruits of it are sweet. The taste is sweet. We have to remember that principle as we are confronting our own mental conditioning, our habits of mind, also the body, the physical difficulties of becoming more aware of the aging process, illnesses, especially in the winter we tend to get colds, flus, or if we're sitting a lot we get aches and pains and so on. We need patience be willing to be with some of the unpleasantness of the body, but then also the unpleasantness of the mind as it throws up what we don't want. We don't want distraction, sleepiness, irritation, restlessness. What we want are the wholesome states in what we're seeking. And all the Buddhist practice 
teachings and the practice we do are directing us towards bringing up wholesome states of mind. But just wanting them isn't enough. We have to be able to endure through the opposite until the mindfulness and the wisdom and then the accompanying happiness and release of the negative states takes place. And you'll see that as we practice how often we begin a session of meditation or sitting or walking or even just how we begin our day, wake up in the morning, how often we begin, our beginning point is dukkha. We have some feelings of tiredness or irritation or mental negativity. Very often that's the beginning point of our meditation. Just to be able to sit or walk through that, just be able to carry on, requires that, at least that awareness that it's important to be patient, to endure, not just to give in. Obviously, if you give in to the negativity or the restlessness, well, you'll give up straight away. But over time, hopefully, you can appreciate this. You appreciate it's worthwhile being patient with negative mind states or physical aches and pains, dukkha vetana, because it's, these are things that are impermanent and can be seen through. They will, things will change by the application of the mind to the practice. And number one, applying the mind to a meditation object, turning to the breath, turning to our regular meditation object is the most efficient way to go through dukkha and particularly to abandon the five hindrances. And one who does that successfully sticks with the meditation object can quickly abandon all the hindrances. But it's that effort, that wholesome effort to keep bringing up attention, paying attention to the meditation object re-establishing mindfulness and the clarity and the accompanying clear understanding of what's going on. And that's the most valuable kind of effort in our practice. But it's supported by patience, being willing to be with that which is difficult to bear with, which is dukkha in its essence. If it was all happiness and peace good feelings, then we wouldn't be here. There'd be no need to practice. But it's not even in the world where we may have had all kinds of comforts. You know, if we're honest, it's not all pleasant, peaceful, enjoyable. It's mixed up with dukkha. But the way the practice works is that we're gradually developing more refined kinds of peace and happiness through the practice so that we can abandon the old habits of seeking the coarser kinds of happiness which we may have used to relieve us of dukkha. A particularly you know, sensuality and attachment to the sense desires, sense pleasures. We do give up a lot of that when we come into the monastery. But to see it's with a purpose, it's to 
support the mind moving on to some of the higher pleasure and happiness that comes from the wholesome states we develop through meditation, keeping the sila, meditating and developing insight. learning to be patient and put effort into developing meditation objects. You're developing the very wholesome states of mind, the mental states or the mental factors of samadhi. These are what in practice help us to get through the hindrances. So you know, vitaka. They say lifting the, med the mind up to the meditation object. Another way you might say just paying attention to your meditation object. You can just reflect sometimes in the course of a meditation session if you feel it hasn't gone anywhere. You've been sitting or walking and you feel your mind is not peaceful, not developing much concentration, not developing any insight. Well, how much of the time were you actually paying attention to the meditation object or lifting your mind up to it? This is vitaka. And the main hindrance that blocks that is doubt. You know, the uncertainty about why we meditate, what's the point. Sometimes we doubt ourselves, doubt the object. Doubt the method, doubt that we can do it or that there is any real peace to be had from doing this practice. Your doubt will stop you making that effort to lift your mind up to the meditation object. You do have to trust a little bit in the words of the Buddha and our teachers to overcome that doubt, to be willing to put the effort in to keep bringing the attention back to the meditation object. And we're fortunate that we do still have plenty of very skilled, wise, peaceful teachers that visit us here and sometimes we visit them where they live. That's always a blessing, you know, the living proof that this practice works, that the practice of meditation, making that effort, that skillful effort to put attention on a meditation object and developing that skill over time, it does bear fruit. Sometimes you meet teachers who you can see, both listening to what they say and just the feeling around them. They have a feeling of peace and even powerful peace, a very powerful, peaceful presence, tangible. And you don't even have to be advanced in your practice to know or feel this. I remember one time I took my brother and his new wife when they're on honeymoon moon to visit a few teachers in Thailand. We went to see Lumpur Somchai at Wat Khao Sukim. He's always known to have a hugely powerful mind, deep concentration, deep insight and psychic powers. He's only a small man, so on the outside, he didn't look that impressive. Dark skinned, short, little monk, sitting there. 
and my brother and his wife, I took them in and we chatted for a while and then I asked for a blessing for them and he kindly chanted for them and as he chanted he spread metta and the wave of metta was like so obvious, so tangible that even my brother who had never meditated or had much to do with Buddhism before could feel it very easily and felt very happy to be there. These kind of experiences just remind us of the tangible results of the practice. It is worth putting in this noble effort to put attention on a meditation object, on the breath, say. Make that effort even if it sometimes seems hopeless and there's many obstacles coming up. So reflecting on Buddhanusati, Dhammanusati, Sanghanusati on teachers often helps to settle the mind from its doubts and uncertainty. And so it's possible to keep putting effort into bringing up Vitaka, putting effort onto the meditation object, lifting the mind up to it. And just the way it's translated from Pali, you're lifting the mind up. What you had before, the hindrances, the distraction, the sleepiness, is obviously something lower. Bringing the mind up to the meditation object is, symbolizes that raising or ennobling of the mind as you make that effort. Vichara is the sustained effort. In the Thai, the word is core. Core, core means doesn't mean neck, that's a different spelling. Core means like a certain closeness with the meditation object. If you keep putting your attention on the object, then you get close to it and you sustain that connection with the object. So I even use the same word with close friends or even intimate, you know, say like a couple who are intimate. You're intimate with your object. You get to know the breath because you're sustaining attention on it. So again, that's what we're doing. We're getting to know the breath, sustaining awareness on the feeling, the sensation of the in and out breath at the tip of the nostrils. So we really know it. To bring attention away from what we're more used to, the unwise attention to the five hindrances. And this is the only way that we can really cut through avicca, reduce the length of time we're going to have to set, spend in samsara, is by training the mind to put attention on and then sustain attention on wholesome objects. So vichara is this sustaining attention, getting to know, getting close with, familiar with the breath, knowing the length of the breath, the beginning, the middle, the end, knowing the coarseness or the refinement of the breath, the sensation and so on. Really using the breath as an object. And it's such a neutral object. It's very directly going to calm the mind. And it's through which ara that sleepiness fades. As you see on these uh, all-night meditation programs we do, 
when you do get through sleepiness for periods of time, maybe it'll be because there's some sustained attention there. The mind is not dropping away from its object, it's not dropping off. So vitaka vichara, you know, these are vital practices and qualities, factors of samadhi that we're developing. And not just in the formal sitting and walking, I mean you're developing them in daily life. When you reflect on the use of the requisites, you reflect on your sila, when you pay attention to chanting, studying, reading, when you're doing a job of work, whether it's a maintenance or construction job or a cleaning job. You know, Jen Chai used to say you can see, you can kind of gauge someone's attention span there, we tackle each other up at just how they do the chores. If you're doing your chores every few moments you stop to talk to someone or do some other activity, you know, it'll, it'll reflect, other people can notice that. You know, just sweeping leaves vacuuming or sweeping a floor, you know, how much attention do you pay to that activity? You notice when you pay attention, you can absorb into a, even a very ordinary activity, which we do all kinds of in the monastery, and it becomes much more enjoyable. Time passes quickly, and we can kind of quick do our job without even thinking about it, which is quietly get on with it, time passes easily and quickly. We don't have the hindrances bothering us when we pay attention to it. So vitaka and vichara are vital qualities to be developing in our meditation and in our daily practice. And they overcome the kind of the main hindrances to the progress of the mind in Samadhi and in wisdom, the doubt, the sleepiness, the dullness. And you see, sleepiness, it's when as a hindrance as opposed to you know, physical exhaustion, but as a hindrance, it comes as a mental thing first. It's the mind turning away from its object, losing energy, becoming dull, going into the dream state and that conditions a physical reaction in the body. So the body starts to physically feel a certain way. You know, the dullness transfers from mind to body. So we get dullness, apathy, drowsiness. Reflects in our posture, reflects in how we feel. So we're talking here about the mental quality of Tina Mita, say drowsiness, dullness, apathy. But when we do put effort into bringing up vitaka vichara, then we start to see the results. Maybe even just getting beyond sleepiness is enough for that sense of the mind brightening and feeling better. <coughs> you feel better, more confident, more happy to be doing the practice. As you push away the doubts by putting attention on the object, push away the sleepiness, then the mind starts to feel better and starts to take interest in the object, which leads to the arising of pity. 
PT means literally you're enjoying, you're interested in the object, in the meditation. It's stimulating, there's a buzz to it. Obviously there's many kinds of PT. It can come up very briefly or very sustained. But it's where the mind leaves behind the causes of the hindrances and moves towards the object happily. We want to be with the object. In lay life we experience it in sort of more mundane ways, briefly. Your team scores a goal. You get some buzz, some joy. The match becomes enjoyable. Hearing your favorite song or something like that. But that's very worldly and still based around the senses. Yeah, even though we're still in the sensual realm, it's based around an object that can take us beyond the sensual realm, say the breath, can take us all the way to fourth jhana, to complete equanimity. It's a very important part of the practice to see this progress from Vitaka Vichara gives rise to pity. Obviously there's the joy that comes in other ways from hearing the Dhamma, reflecting on the Dhamma, reflecting on good experiences in the past, but in a more sustained and as a skill of mind, we're developing it through putting attention on our meditation object. It brings an enthusiasm to the, to the meditation, so boredom, irritation fades, and ultimately as pity becomes stronger, anger, ill will fades. So if you experience some pity at that moment, you won't be angry. Obviously there's mindfulness, initial and sustained attention on the object, then the pity arises. There's no way anger can be in the mind at that moment. So as, you know, as monks, we're, we're the ones leading the Buddhist community, you might say. We're the ones who are taking full responsibility for training our minds to abandon the hindrances, develop the higher dhammas. And when we do fall into anger and negativity, which is understandable, but it's our responsibility to deal with that. And you know, it's a sign that piti, vitaka vichara piti has faded. Ajahn Chah used to say, you know, when you get angry with someone, that's the time to go away, go to your chongkrum path and just walk until you've re-established mindfulness and the calm and the pity. We might do it in a more temporary way and listen to the Dhamma or go and see someone to get advice or reassurance. That can help as well. But really, as a skill, you've got to learn to do it yourself. To sit, to walk, go away until you've re-established the sense of calm. So with pity arising, there's an enthusiasm and interest in the practice. And this clears away so many coarse mind states. The negativity, the irritation with one's own body, irritation with weather and external conditions, and then people drops away. And we can be happy on our own meditating, and not bothering about others.
not getting caught into memories of why we were angry with someone or something. So it's that change in the mind when we become encouraged in our, our practice, encouraged by our own experience, encouraged, enthusiastic, stimulated. And from that, out of that, the deeper sense of satisfaction with the meditation object and the practice comes, the sukha. And they compare pity and sukha like say a mother has lost her child in a crowd in the shopping mall or something. And then someone says, oh, I saw your child. And pity is that sort of moment where, oh, I've got hope of the child, child's being found. <clears throat> sukha is where they've actually got the child back. So there's that sustained quality of calm, happiness, satisfaction. All is good. So it's a much more deeper quality, profound quality that, uh, that more than pity, sukha, it really calms the mind. So it's the counter to restlessness, agitation. So even if you've got a lot of bad memories, guilty feelings, upset about things that have happened in the past, it calms that because your mind is now settled in the present moment and finding happiness with the breath, with the meditation. It settles the, the worries, the anxiety about the future. And really if you experience some sukha in your meditation, it doesn't matter about the future. You're not so worried about old age, sickness, death, <coughs> where you're going to be, what's going to happen, all the kind of worries that even monks can have. Who's going to look after me? What's going to happen? All that fades because your mind is content in the present moment, happy, peaceful. It's willing to drop these lesser concerns. <coughs> it's got something sat satisfying enough. It doesn't need to worry anymore. It doesn't need to worry about the past, the future. It's happy in itself. And if you were to die at that point, well, it doesn't matter because the mind is happy. You don't need to worry about what destination you might head to or what happens next. Eka kata is the hardest, obviously, to develop the most refined quality of one-pointedness. When we say one-pointedness, it means one point. So they compare what went previously is like the mind being a bit like a alpine trekker up in the Alpine National Park wanting to see every peak. Somebody is very fit going up and down, looking and searching, looking at the views, looking at the trails till they've done them all. Now they've got to the highest peak and it's enough, satisfying enough. Just one peak, one point don't need to look for anything else. So it's the direct opposite of sensual desire, which obviously is the hardest to abandon. It's the sense that this is enough, there's complete satisfaction, absorption, contentment with the object and the lack of movement of the mind. And sensuality and sensual desire, gama chanda, always leads to movement based on craving. 
that constant searching and seeking for satisfaction with new, fresh experiences, new pleasures, something that's better, bigger, different. And when we are caught into sense desire, <coughs> the mind is just trapped, isn't it? It's like it's enslaved. <coughs> we practice you know, how many times a sensual desire caught you out and just led, led you to spin around in your kind of own little sangsara once it's grabbed your mind, the object's grabbed your mind, grabbed your attention and even if you've previously had a bit of pity and sukha the mind just won't loosen from that fantasy, that creation of the mind maybe stimulated by memories but Obviously, it's the present moment, the mind is fascinated by something. So, as Ajahn Chah used to say, what's it most fascinated by was sensual, sensuality based on sexual desire. You know, the sight of a woman, say for a monk, the sight of a woman, the smell, the taste, the touch, it's so absorbing. The mind just wants to cling to that, doesn't want to let it go. It's more fascinated by that than the uh, meditation object. So even someone during the course of sitting or walking, they would experience some pity and super, some contentment. Once this grabs the mind, very difficult to shake it off. Again, it's you know, the mind going into the old pathways, the old rut, not willing to move the ox cart out of the rut. So happier to just to circle around within the, that field of sensuality rather than bring it to one-pointedness. So over and over again, meditators have this problem. They get to that point and they just can't drop sensual attach, attachment to the sense desires and that searching and seeking. Often what helps is some wise reflection. You're outside of the time of the formal meditation as well just constantly reflecting on anicca dukkha anatta, reflecting on the asupa, reflecting on the limitations, the limiting qualities of sense desire and the sense objects. You know, skillful conversation, skillful reading, reflecting how they just can't bring us any lasting happiness, any sense object you can think of, any pleasurable experience you can think of, just can't satisfy the mind. So that when one is that, at that point, maybe in a meditation, sitting or walking and the mind has become very refined and it's calm. And when that image, the memory, the image comes up to catch you, catch you out, you know, Mara's put his snare out, there's enough wisdom and enough understanding just to push through, not to want to give in. The mind is tired, has reflected enough, it's tired enough not to give in to the, the old fantasy and the old habit of sensual desire, to drop it. And if you're going to drop it during meditation to attain one-pointedness, then that has to be the result of having dropped 
sensual desire many times before. Again, it's a skill. So this is why we do practice say, Tudonga practices and Aditana, make Aditanas and do different practices in our days because we're teaching the mind to drop its obsession with sensuality. So we do learn to drop our obsession, say, with food, with sleep, with different kinds of distraction, watching things, looking at things, finding out about things. And sometimes we have to be able to say no. And that's a skill once you're becoming more mindful doing that in daily life in different ways. Then this will pay off, the bonus will come during meditation. You'll have trained the mind to be able to turn away from the objects of sensuality at the, the important moment. Because there's nothing more frustrating than having developed some vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, and just on the threshold, the crest of eka kata, and then oh, caught back in another fantasy again. It's very defeating for the meditator. So just wise reflection in daily life is going to be able to support that ability just to cut through. Sometimes it's fear also, just fear of losing sensuality, fear of losing the familiar. Another huge obstacle that often comes up right before one-pointedness. You know, fear of loneliness, fear of death, fear of any kind of danger, threat from animals or disease or even people. Also a huge, huge obstacle to one-pointedness. Which is again why we have to be contemplating, you know, in daily life. Before we sit meditation, we should already be contemplating what brings up fear for us. And what is this fear? Learning about it. What am I afraid of losing? As you question like this, then you more become more and more aware that you know the things you're afraid of losing are not really yours anyway. And this body is not ours, our possessions are not ours, the things of this world are not ours. There's nothing actually to lose. Rather lose the fear and stay with the mind that is stable, one-pointed, unshakable. It's this unshakability of mind that we're developing through meditation. Of course, fear, when it comes up, it's a powerful emotion freezes us, it can freeze us physically, freezes us mentally, which is why it's another big obstacle. But to really have enough patience and enough reflective ability to see that there's really nothing to lose. And it's the things we've been holding on to are the things to lose, that we should lose, shake them off. I remember the first time I went to the forest at Kaoyai in Thailand where there were still tigers and elephants. We meditated as a group first, went with a few other monks, just a few other monks. The first night we'd been traveling, so when we meditated, we meditated together till about 10, so most people were pretty tired from traveling and sleepiness was probably the biggest obstacle. 
but then going off to my place in the forest I chose a place a long way out just wanted to be on my own took about half an hour to walk there as soon as I put my light out everything changed there's no sleepiness at all because I was now on my own when you're with other people there's no fear or little fear once you're on your own there's fear all the fear came up I didn't sleep a wink the whole night I could hear animals moving around even grunting and growling in the forest I was on my own so as soon as I turned my light out the whole experience changed from being tired sleepy to one of complete stimulation but by the quality of fear all I could do was just sit with it sit experience the fear practice patience watch it, investigate it, but it didn't leave the whole night until the, the light of dawn. So obviously that occasion, there was only a couple of rains. There was no, or not much, piti sukha eka kata. I put a lot of effort into vitaka, just trying to establish mindfulness and some vichara and reflect on what was going on. Piti Sukha Eka Kata left the mind. But in another sense, it was useful because it showed me what I had to do. You see the, the depths of the problem, the depths of the attachment in those situations. And even though it's unpleasant to be with, if you're willing to be patient and witness what's going on rather than just react to it, you can learn. You can see, well, fear will overcome sleepiness. Fear will overcome even sexual desire, sensual desire at that time. There's nothing else that fills the mind. But that's the problem confronting you. How can you establish mindfulness and maintain, sustain the mindfulness within fear? In the end, all these hindrances, you know, they're, they're the challenge we have. The challenge is how to learn to still the mind so it's not shaken, not shaken about by the hindrances to the point where they start to subside. When they do subside, well then there's the relief, the peace, the piti, the sukha and the one-pointedness. And with that gives it, you get the chance to reflect clearly that was not self. Any feeling, emotion, negative thought state that has arisen, passed away, you've had enough mindfulness to see through it. it obviously it's not self and that's where you get even more energy in the practice more they say the more courage courage arises because you've seen through seen off some of the hindrances even if it's only temporarily briefly there's the kind of long-term courage that you know awicca oh, does have an end if I'm willing to practice enough, develop this practice enough, then it does have an end and all the dukkha that it produces can also then have an end. And then in the short term, you get that immediate kind of courage, the peace of mind as the hindrances drop away, you get the brightness of mind, the happiness, which gives you the, you know, the immediate energy to carry on practicing. We also get that long-term view of the practice. You see, hindrances are not self. They do arise and pass away. 
fear of the hindrances starts to fade, even though they're annoying, they're tiresome because they're hindrances. You know, they, they are trouble, a regular trouble, but at the same time you've seen, had a glimpse of their impermanent, selfless nature. So they're less, less of a burden to the mind, less of a concern. You know they can be let go of if you continue to practice. So you get a lot of confidence from that. Mind becomes confident, courageous, willing to keep practicing, and not really afraid of anything else. Not afraid of external things, more afraid of just these hindrances. And the states of avicara and unwise attention that we've previously keep giving to them, building them up in the mind. That becomes the real enemy, the real troublemaker in our practice. You know, rather than always blaming other monks or people around us or our own karma or whatever it is, we see it's really this unwise attention to the hindrances, building them up, giving in to them. That's our real problem. leave you with these reflections tonight. We can carry on practicing until it's time for the chanting. <laughs> 